0: I actually told our team five years ago, please do not use in any of our marketing material that we want to save the world or change the world for the better, because I used to hate this cheesy stuff. But every single day, my responsibility is growing with what we are building. And yeah, you're right. I feel like we actually have an active contribution to changing the communities that we are currently in for the better. And the more people know about us, the more people will have hope that even a small single chopstick can create employment opportunities and change in the world. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul.
1: You ever walk into someone's home and your jaw hits the floor because everything you see looks like it has a purpose? There's no junk drawer, no closet with random things you couldn't find a place for, no mismatched Tupperware. Everything appears so thoughtfully chosen and carefully laid out in a manner that is both functional and tasteful. Unfortunately, that's not what you'll find when you walk into my house, but it is what you'll discover upon entering Little Kitchen Academy. Everything there has a reason for being, and in some cases, a great story to go with it. Take, for example, the community table, where the children gather at the end of every class to eat what they prepared and to socialize. That table is an incredible example of what Little Kitchen Academy is all about, and if it could talk, I'd interview it because it would have thousands of stories to share. But since it can't, I did the next best thing. I invited the creator of that community table, Felix Bach, to meet me in the kitchen. And just like that table, there's so much more to Felix than first meets the eye. Or in this case, the ear. Felix, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you?
0: I'm great, Scott. Thanks for inviting me.
1: No problem whatsoever. And thank you very much for accepting. Now, I know that is not a typical Canadian accent because you haven't even said sorry yet, Felix. So that can't be Canadian.
0: I know. I didn't say sorry. I didn't say thank you enough yet, but <laughs> you, you, you're you right. And honestly, I never expected to be in a meeting me in the kitchen podcast. I mean, I'm, I'm the furthest away of being a chef, but yeah, I guess I, I have a lot to learn today. Where are you originally from, Felix? I am German. I grew up in, in the German Alps and a small village of 60 people. Now 59 are left and happy to live in Vancouver now.
1: What brought you to Vancouver?
0: I'm a very opportunistic person. So I had the chance to do my graduate research out at UBC, had to choose between UBC, MIT or Cambridge. And I just chose to place furthest away from home as you do when you're in your early 20s and you want to go on adventures. Yeah, that's how I ended up here. And lucky me in my first week of living in Vancouver or maybe second week, I I met my today wife. And yeah, the rest is history. Now now I can't leave anymore.
1: (laughs) How did that meeting occur?
0: We got introduced. You know, I I, I met this fellow German guy at, at UBC on my first day, and I think we were the only two people showing up at eight AM. And he looked at me, uh, you know, after after a while, and said, "I think I need to introduce you to someone." And yeah, a couple of weeks later, we were together.
1: Well, it's worked out very well, as has your time in Vancouver. And we don't want you to leave anytime soon. What did you come to UBC to study?
0: So I'm a wood engineer, already very specific. Always work with natural resources, love the forests, love wood as a renewable material. And my expertise is actually a bamboo as a natural engineering material. So I'm a material scientist and had the chance to work on my PhD at UBC, on structural bamboo products and yeah when it when it got to transferring that know-how into the industry academia you know was a little bit too slow for me and i thought okay i need to take it in my own hands and that's actually the story also how i started my company
1: and i do want to get to the story of how you started your company here momentarily but forgive my lack of geographical awareness i know bamboo does not occur naturally in vancouver i'm guessing it doesn't occur naturally in the german alps
0: why the focus on bamboo I know why. Why would this German, you know, carpenter, uh, I call himself a bamboo expert? I don't know. I, I I just got into it. You know, the true story is my very very first kitchen I ever built when I was fifteen years old in my apprenticeship was just by coincidence made of bamboo in the German Alps. Believe it or not, and. I was fascinated by the material, but but didn't really think about it for a few years. And then during my studies, it fell into my hands again, pretty much with, you know, first student projects and my very first job that brought me to a startup in Ethiopia in East Africa, where a company tried to get away from tropical timber use and tried to replace these non-sustainable hardwood materials with bamboo as a raw material and this is really where i got into it and made a name for myself in in the industry and after a while i became that german guy from the alps who was really really good in what what i was doing in bamboo
1: (laughs) really good you're one of the world's foremost experts when it comes to bamboo what is it about the material itself that has been so captivating or intoxicating for you
0: yeah, honestly it's it's impossible not to be passionate about bamboo as a raw material because it's it's the fastest growing wooden grass on earth. So it obviously has a huge potential for Carbon storage, carbon sequestration, but also as a building material. If you know how to use it, if you know how to sustainably and efficiently process it, it has a huge opportunity to replace tropical timbers when it comes to performance for any sort of building materials, uh, window seams, flooring, you name it. And you know, moving to Canada was obviously a little counterproductive for my career because, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not the best pickup line when you walk into a into a red truck Brewery in in East Van and say I'm a bamboo engineer because people definitely roll their eyes at you. But, you know, to be fair, there's a point to be made that the joking story about me continuing my bamboo research by collecting chopsticks in Vancouver because we have so many Asian restaurants became part of that truth one day and, you know, kind of led into me starting Chop Value, which is funny. So you mentioned
1: Chop Value which is the company that you founded you mentioned chopsticks I imagine most of our listeners don't understand how that all goes together give me the origin story for Chop Value and how chopsticks play into it
0: Yeah so that connection is it's not too far fetched so it quite literally started with you know not taking myself too serious and just jokingly telling my friends look if I ever run out of research material, you know, that I used to get from Asia to to do my research out here at UBC, if I'm ever running out of it, I could just collect and recycle bamboo chopsticks and, and turn them into new material. So that was the half-serious start of the company. But the serious start was really I was I was actually hired on the site by Metro Vancouver and FP Innovations, a local research institute, to do some studies on our construction waste in Vancouver housing market. And I think maybe you know, if you're from here, Scott, you know about our really rapidly changing Vancouver skyline and and our neighborhoods are rapidly changing and what people build, how they build, and we are creating so much construction waste. And I realized my expertise was needed to turn this efficiency thinking that I developed in the bamboo industry into our local construction industry. And this is the connection. So the connection was really the efficiency thinking of our resources together with my knowledge in, in bamboo and thinking how can I prove my point that we can start a, a viable circle or economy business with something small and humble like a chopstick and something that everyone understands, a relatable resource, a tangible resource, something that we touch and feel twice a week, three times a week as Vancouver writes during our takeouts. And that's how I started collecting chopsticks for a living.
1: Now, your mother has called you a garbage man with a PhD. I saw her quoted as saying that. Why does she call you that? <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, my mom, you know, it's a little hard to keep track with my career steps. And I feel like along the way, many people got worried around me, you know, that I'm throwing my ideas around and throwing my life, uh, you know, on the landfill, per se. And I just told my mom, look, you once told me that the garbage men in Germany, they have these orange outfits so that they are really well seen on the roads. She once told me they're, they're paid by the government and, and they're getting a really, really good salary. You know, and so just to make sure that she's comfortable with my new career path and doesn't have to worry about me, I told her, look, just tell people I'm a garbage man now. I really made it a stable job and never running out of work.
1: I love that story. That is great. I also need to know how one goes from saying, look, I could always find product by collecting chopsticks and having that as a whimsical idea that you never do anything with. But as you said, you wanted to prove a point and you wanted to develop a circular economy using a renewable and reusable resource. So how do you go from that idea to what you've actually done and what chop value does today?
0: Yeah, this is obviously an evolving story that I'm pretty happy about having this character, I guess, where if I say something out loud, I definitely want to follow through. And I think that moment, you know, when I was with my girlfriend and now wife at, at sushi dinner, and I, I set out this idea once out loud. I knew it really has to come to fruition. And and I started the next day because I think too many people, you know, I still meet them every single day where they're saying, oh, I had this idea before. But I think the crucial thing is how do you use your background, your experience, your know-how? How how do you use this to actually turn an idea into real, maybe even commercially viable project later on a company and today, you know, a, a global organization? And that took a lot of humbling moments and humbling experiences because you you start from zero again, right? I left a really good career uh, in in academia and industry. I had an existing engineering company with far less risk and less staff to start from zero again, because I really, really want to show everyone to make this work, how we can prove out this sustainable circular story.
1: So tell me what happens with the chopsticks you collect and where they go and where we see them now.
0: Yeah, so you have to imagine when I had the idea. It is one of these napkin ideas, you know. You are trying to wrap your head around how much of this crazy stuff is actually out here. Like, how big is that resource stream that we are definitely neglecting and, and totally thinking it's too small to care about? So I came up with around an estimate that we throw out one hundred thousand chopsticks per day in Vancouver alone. So that was the starting point, you know. I thought, okay, if I can collect ten percent of that, you know, ten thousand chopsticks per day. And um, I'm going to call it maybe 70 to 100,000 a week. Let's model this little idea that way. So today, I'm proud that we're collecting around 350,000 chopsticks per week in Vancouver alone. So we are going around from restaurant to restaurant and our malls and restaurant partners, hotel partners, business partners. And we're collecting that, that resource that we call urban harvesting. And it goes to our local chop value microfactory. That microfactory is designed you know, to fit into a standard warehouse space in North American warehouse, you know, two and a half thousand, three thousand square feet big. And then it actually gets transformed in a technology that we developed through a screening process, drying a water-based resin from the automotive industry. And then it gets highly densified into a new engineering material. And that new engineering material can then be used as a replacement for solid timber. Now, you know, the questions that usually come, could you, could you build houses out of it or you, could you make structural beams out of it? The answer is, you know, on paper, yes, from a performance perspective. But we choose to make products for everyone's daily use so that you can touch and feel and, and tell the story of what hundreds or thousands of chopsticks have been turned into. You know, restaurant tables, desks home decor products, or, you know, this beautiful community table that we're making for a Little Kitchen Academy, for example, for all the little kids to eat on and play on.
1: And I do want to get to that part of this story, because that's why we're doing this interview here today. But before we get there, I imagine the sell to restaurants or the pitch to restaurants is probably a pretty easy one. Look, we'll come to you, we'll take your chopsticks, and we're going to turn them into something other than waste. Did you get agreement very early from a lot of
0: restaurants? You know, early on, you, you don't have brand recognition. You don't have a name. You you the Restaurants don't understand why they would be offered something for free. So obviously, they are suspicious at first. But then I think how we approach it is we just take them on a, on a journey. We set them up as partners. You know, we, we treat them like we treat customers who are paid customers. We treat our restaurant partners as well, where we really explain them the benefit why they should be part of it, why they should be joining our collection program. And I think this is enough to build this really strong relationship with them. And after a while, you know, now we have in Vancouver alone, I think we have around 400 partners. And I mean, when I still did the pickup, you know, we had maybe 25 partners in in our neighborhood. So it's definitely now dealt with more professionally, uh, very different, but still the same personal relationships with every restaurant that we share news and 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 share initiatives and events about invite them to parties and making sure that they're really part of this movement rather than just being you know our garbage service people
1: when you were trying to get people interested in this project at the beginning and probably still to this day i'm told that you have a very compelling story about the journey of the chopstick can you share that with us
0: <laughs> yeah so you know i always try to give the little chopstick a, a personality because I don't think there's anything too little to care about, right? I I think if we really wanna drive change and it can be quite daunting, you know, to to hear about all these huge issues, we have climate crisis and then like all these disasters that we don't really know where to start. And I think the chopstick is a really, really cool communicator for us to say, look, this little chopstick comes, you know, in 95% of the cases comes actually from this forest somewhere in China, and it travels over 6,000 miles all across the ocean to end up on our lunch plate for 20 to 30 minutes before we throw that little guy out into the bin. And there's just no argument, no matter how many analysis you're running, or no matter how good you are in calculating the life cycle or making a carbon assessment or all these stupid, smart, clever-sounding keywords, there's no narrative where you can feel good about throwing out a resource after you've used it only for 20 to 30 minutes. So that little chopstick we are giving a second life and you know there's one of my favorite chinese proverb that I'm surely messing up now that I'm on on this podcast but it says you know as a single stick you can be broken easily but as a pack you're unbeatable meaning the strength of teamwork the strength of community it's so fun to think of this as a engineering material where you're putting 200, 300 chopsticks together and bring them together for a second life to turn into a new home decor piece or a set of coasters that is now sitting on your coffee table. That is a really powerful story to explain someone what, you know, circle economy is all about.
1: You're right, it is. And there's a nice tie-in to Little Kitchen Academy. You mentioned something so little can be so powerful and it can be used for good. I'm wondering how you first came in contact with Little Kitchen Academy and why it interested you.
0: Yeah, you know, it was one of these introductions where I'm very certain that both Felicity and Brian and I did not really know why we got introduced and what to expect when we first met for coffee. And I mean, we are now telling that story with quite a bit of joy because we we both had kind of our plan B emergency phone call to be received after 15 minutes of coffee because I'm like, okay, why am I meeting with a kid's cooking school that I really don't understand the concept? And why would they meet with the chopstick guy? And I think sometimes you have these moments where you really feel like it just clicks and you speak the first few sentences and you know there's some values that are aligned. And you know, if I would speak today about these values, and I think it's really education, I think we wanna take something very authentic and simple and use it to educate, but but not from top down, you know, like... With the community, like allowing to communicate education about something simple like cooking with the right ingredients, or in my case, you know, being better with our natural resources with very simple stories. And we knew when we met, or I I can speak for myself, I knew that there's a really, really, really good fit to work together on 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 a global scale because we think so much alike.
1: It's interesting you say that because Felicity tells a similar backstory that much like you, she didn't understand why this meeting was occurring. (laughs) She didn't think it would be very long. But by the end of that meeting, she knew you had to partner together. This needed to be an integral part of every little kitchen academy. You mentioned it earlier. And for those who might have missed it, in every little kitchen academy, there is a community table. And that community table is made by chop value, and it's made out of recycled chopsticks. How does that make you feel that that's where these little humans, and in some cases, teenagers, but that's where they gather at the end of every session at Little Kitchen Academy?
0: You know, this is, it's a very proud feeling, because, you know, knowing that we are part of Little Kitchen Academy's brand that really spreads their positive development across the world in such a transparent way, that really makes me proud almost like very, very happy because what these kids are doing is they ask questions about something they see right in front of them and that they can feel and see, you know, it's not an app on their phone or another school book to read. It's a table. It's literally a piece of furniture that they usually would just walk by. They would probably not have an appreciation for the design, but because it's made out of I think 33,246 chopsticks. Don't quote me on that number, please. But I think it's definitely more than 33,000 chopsticks that community table is made of. You know, every educator and, or every little kitchen chef now has an opportunity to tell one story. And, and that story could be so different. Like one day that story could be maybe my chopsticks are in that table because I live in that neighborhood where this table was made. Or that story could be I know someone who works at the Chop Valley Micro Factory in my city and they made that table. Or the story could be Today is the first time I understood what circular economy means. So we don't have to throw out these little sticks. I know now if I put them into the Chop Valley bin, they're being turned into community tables for the little kitchen. There's so many cool stories that you can imagine these kids picking up on, you know, depending on the age, depending on the interest that. Yeah, I feel kind of responsible now to really do a good job, you know, as as a partner to LKA.
1: You were very close on the chopsticks. 33,436 is the number. You were only off by a couple hundred. But to be fair, I wrote it down. You have to do this all the time and you have many other products that you have to configure.
0: Yeah, you know, and I try to be really accurate when it comes to numbers, because I think it's really important. It's it's part of our traceability story. What I mean by traceability is, I, I think, in the rarest cases today, do we actually know where our products are coming from? You know, for instance, the microphone that we are sitting in front of, like, you know, there's a high likelihood this is being produced somewhere entirely different in the world that that we assume it is produced, and 10 other components are shipped before it gets packaged and arrives on our desk that we can now speak into. I want to change that with the chop value products. I want to make sure that we know exactly how many chopsticks were collected where, by whom, and who produced it before it ended up in this really, really beautiful, appreciative engineered product in its new use.
1: I can understand why you and Felicity and Brian wouldn't have seen the alignment at the time. But now, as somebody who has talked to many people involved with Little Kitchen Academy, has read your backstory, the alignment seems very simple and very much in sync. That both Chop Value and Little Kitchen Academy simply want to change this world for the better. Is that a fair statement?
0: Yeah, and honestly, I would have probably tried to play this down a little bit five years ago because, you know, I I actually told our team five years ago, please do not use in any of our marketing material that we want to save the world or change the world for the better because I used to hate this cheesy stuff. but. The more I'm involved, you know, in this kind of part of my career or the more I read on, you know, Twitter about all the the negative stuff that people almost like lose hope that they can change anything, every single day my responsibility is growing with what we're building. And yeah, you're right. I feel like we actually have an active contribution to changing the communities that we are currently in for the better, and the more people know about us, the more people will have hope that even a small single chopstick can create employment opportunities and change in the world.
1: As someone who grew up in a village of just 60 people, you have to have a sense of community to function. That's how your village operates on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis. Do you feel a sense of pride in your upbringing that goes into that table? It's literally called a community table, Felix, that people sit at. And that, to me... Is some type of tribute to your past, if I'm looking at it through that lens.
0: Yeah, you know this is this is such an interesting point. I, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack. Uh, you, you're right. I think when you grow up in a smaller community, you you have a stronger sense of responsibility because you can't really afford to look away. You know, you do help each other. You're there for each other. You know each other's names, and you rely on each other. And I think this is part of the culture we are building with drop value, the name community table definitely is inspired by Felicity. You know, Felicity wanted this to be the center of Little Kitchen Academy where everyone comes together at the end of a session, at end of every session to enjoy their meal on. So it had to match the experience. You know, the, the experience of of the session that are being provided for the kids has to match the experience of where they're sitting at so that, you know, that connection is not getting lost. And this is what I got. Like I think that was the only introduction I got before we designed the community table. And with that, we run... The way we ran. And I'm not sure if it was during that time or maybe shortly after we actually hired our first community builder as a job position at job value because we we, we noticed that this is the path forward. Like we we don't wanna call it, you know, a transaction anymore when, when we do sales or a transaction anymore, when we meet someone that could benefit to grow our business. No, we wanted to make sure that this is a, a position we call community building as part of a more longer term sustainable path to grow our partnerships.
1: Well, the table itself is a symbol of that, and you spoke to that earlier. Here's what one little chopstick can do, but look at what all of these little chopsticks together can do, and you've done that with your network of restaurants, and now with your franchising around the world, and really that's what Little Kitchen is trying to do with the children it educates. I'm not saying this to patronize you whatsoever. I recently interviewed my daughter for this podcast. She's eight years old, and I asked her what her favorite part of being at a Little Kitchen Academy class is, And she said, sitting at the community table at the end with everyone else, sharing our meals and talking together.
0: Oh, that's so cute. I mean, and this is, you know, out of personal experience, I remember having maybe one meal together as a family per year, and that was on Christmas because, you know, growing up in a very hardworking family with a family business, you know, you you kind of, you eat in shifts or you don't eat at all together. And hearing this from your daughter as an experience, I mean, this is just you know, the little icing on the cake, I guess, to feel good about what we do together with LK.
1: I don't know how often you get home these days, but because of technology, I'm sure your family can follow you from around the world. I understand, though, your mom is not the biggest fan of you. She's the biggest fan of Little Kitchen Academy on social media. What is it about Little Kitchen Academy that has resonated with your mother?
0: Oh, I think, you know, it's this emotion connection when you you can't help but smile when you see these kids in their experiences in in this space. And I love that you picked up on that because it's true. You know, my, my mom, her name is Gabi. She is following every single little kitchen account that she finds on Instagram. I think one of her hobbies is Googling if there are new Instagram accounts that, that may be popped up and make sure that she follows each of them, you know, and, You know, quite arguably, they're the same content on there only in different cities because you see kids cooking. But she's, you know, whenever I visit and I look over what she's doing on her phone, she's usually watching kids cooking at Little Kitchen Academy. And I'm like, I think it's that connection to someone she knows or someone she got to know because she had the pleasure to meet Felicity and Brian and and also that little connection to me because she probably is not interested seeing you know factories all the time or, or looking at wood. Uh, so she's, <laughs> she's probably looking a little bit through the Little Kitchen Academy accounts to what I'm up to or if, if I have delivered these community tables on time. I don't know, but I'm really, really happy that it has that effect on my mom and I feel a bit closer to her through that.
1: Well, and speaking of connection, Felicity and Brian's oldest daughter is named Gabby. It must have felt like this was meant to be from the get-go.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, and and I think that's that's also something my mom is picking up on. You know, it's it, it's really cute to see them interact, especially because of the language barrier sometimes. So, yeah, it makes me really happy. It's uh it's a really really great relationship.
1: Now, as you alluded to earlier, you don't consider yourself the best cook in the world, and the kitchen isn't necessarily the most comfortable place for you, or it hasn't been throughout your life. But this is the question every person on this podcast gets asked, because this is the question Little Kitchen Academy asks of its partners. What is the one ingredient, Felix, that is always in your kitchen?
0: Cilantro. And that actually is because if there's cilantro in the kitchen, I know my wife is close by. And she's the absolute best supporter in this crazy chopstick journey ever. So if I know there's cilantro in the kitchen, then I know Italia is close by.
1: That's very nice. Does that mean that the two of you cook together or do you simply consume?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I hope she will never listen to this podcast. So I would say I'm standing next to her with a lot of moral support until she tells me to get the hell out of the kitchen and hoping for me to help cleaning up. But no, it's, it's true. I'm actually, the most stressed you will find me, you know, is not building a startup, raising money or growing a brand globally. The most stressed you will find me is if I have two pans at the same time on the oven. So that's her favorite story to tell.
1: Well, let's continue to tell your story a little bit. I'm wondering how you go from napkin idea, let's see what we can do with a few chopsticks, to starting your own factory, micro factory, as you termed it earlier in this interview, in Vancouver too. I think we can spread this around the world. I think we can franchise this opportunity. How have you grown the way you have, Felix?
0: Hmm. it's hard to start because, you know, it, it takes a lot of determination and I think also a lot of maybe a little of bit of luck that all my background kind of fell into this one idea. Like background with industry experience, understanding how to scale, understanding how to commercialize from resource to material, but then seeing the gap between commercializing a material to an end product. That's where the business is happening. And my passion for beautiful branding. I, I think without our brand, it would just purely not exist. So All these factors came together to this one single idea that I threw, you know, my entire 110% commitment and and effort behind it. So from the napkin idea to having some access to some research labs to develop the first prototypes, engineering and designing the the machines myself until I was able to afford my first full-time employee of Craigslist (laughs) and bootstrapping it the first year just to prove the concept because I was, you know, ashamed or afraid to ask anyone for help because I thought it's just a crazy, stupid idea. I think the first year was not even the most difficult part <laughs> because that, w- that still felt natural to me. That was just me working hard. The expansion idea comes from a place of how do we scale responsibly? And then again, timing aligned very, very luckily because I knew already the first year that I'm not going to grow the concept bigger than my microfactory vision because I did not want to ship the recycled resources that we urban harvest from our cities. I didn't want to ship them all around the world again and build another mega factory because that would defeat the purpose of actually creating a green product, right? And and to me, I knew I need to place these microfactories in every single city I would like to expand to. So I knew I need skin in the game And I think one of the business methods of having skin in the game is franchising. I didn't know nothing about franchising. And I think that was around the timing when I met Brian and Felicity for the first time. And just like Felicity saw maybe in my eyes that the passion and excitement that I had for the community table idea and Little Kitchen Academy, I think Brian maybe had that sparkle in his eyes when he visited our microfactory for the first time. Because, you know, for those people who who don't know, Brian is probably one of the top 0.1% in the world when it comes to franchising brands. And I saw that change in attitude when he and I met for the first time in our microfactory here in Vancouver. And he looked at it and I think he only needed two or three minutes to realize that we should not keep this concept for ourselves. This should be expanded globally, responsibly, decentralized you know now I'm throwing all these keywords at you but in in a way where you can make it as local as possible but on a global scale and yeah from that moment I didn't rest and we're pushing hard to expand this now I do want to ask about that but I can't move on without
1: asking you what you put in a craigslist ad for your first employee for your
0: company (laughs) okay so this was you, you need to imagine I I just lived here for two or three years I have zero network All I know from, you know, apartment hunting or furniture shopping was Craigslist. I had no other resource whatsoever. So my first full-time employee, I put an ad out there saying, we're turning chopsticks into beautiful furniture. You know, if you have hands-on skills, have worked with hand tools or wood before, please get in touch. And we had more than 300 applicants. And I think it was the same week where we maybe got our first media exposure. So that helped. But I remember, you know, getting this this really long, passionate application from our first full-time employee. He's still with us. So he still works with us as a head of concept design because he knows the company in and out. His name is Bernardo, Bernardo Caspé. And, you know, I expected this young, early 20-year-old, really talented woodworker. And after six or seven weeks employment, he told me, oh, I need to take a day off. I need to take the kids to the doctor. I'm like, you have kids? (laughs) And then he said, I have two kids and a wife and I'm 41 years old. So not only was he almost double the age of mine that immediately changed the dynamic of how I managed him, but also he, he looked so much younger. And I all of a sudden felt this like panic that I was responsible for someone like a family father's income. You know, And I bootstrapped the stupid idea. So honestly, I think Bernardo was one of the reasons for me to make sure that I'm not going to fail the first year in business that we survived this bootstrapped year to prove out the concept because I definitely did not want to miss a single payroll to him.
1: Now, I want to go back to the expansion and going to different countries around the planet and doing that in a responsible manner. Felicity talked about there being a push and a pull within her To franchise, she knew how many more people she could affect, how many more children could be started on the right path. And at the same time, not being hands on in the same community as all of these little kitchen academies that would be popping up, she really had to know that the people she was partnering with were invested in the same idea. Do you go through the same thing? And how difficult is that to make sure that the people you're bringing on? have the exact same vision.
0: Yeah, you know, this is one of the most important things when when you are giving your technology or giving your idea or your brand values to someone else. You need to understand at the very, very first in the most challenging and most difficult times, you know, no matter if they're working through a pandemic or they're working through challenges with their staff or challenges in the economy, how do they react? And you only know that by knowing their deepest core values. So if they are part of, Of the exact same purpose as you do and maybe they have tried in many and many other ways maybe in their previous jobs or maybe they even had a business before where they tried and 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 weren't succeeding but they worked in the same field or they always had the same values then they're probably a good fit we go through the same way and we always want to ensure that we we communicate it in a way that we enable others to own our success with their own little touch and, and their, their know-how for their own community and their own market. Because we never ever want to come in with this ego telling them exactly what to do or telling them this will work in your city because we know better. That's what I want to avoid. But I think on the other hand, we need to stand our ground on the things that we do know and where we made the mistakes. Because I think the, the beauty of franchising is for the franchisee, it should feel like there's someone else out there who has already done all the mistakes and uh, I'm, I'm getting an 80% refined solution here that I have to work hard for and hopefully be successful. That sucks a little bit, you know, to be an early franchisor because we definitely go through these challenges ourselves and, and want to make these mistakes before they can be made by franchisees. But that's definitely our philosophy.
1: Now, when you're not working hard and when you're not with Talia at home having cilantro and making your own food and you get an opportunity to dine out, I want to know as somebody who works with chopsticks every day, do you actively seek out restaurants that use chopsticks or do you do the opposite? Do you need a break from them?
0: No, I actively seek out sushi spots, ramen spots, Chinese restaurants, Thai restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants, Korean restaurants, making sure that I have the opportunity to at least see how partners interact with something simple like throwing sticks into our bin. You know, I'm, I'm always curious to see if they're super busy and they have huge lineups. I want to show them the appreciation to still go through this little extra step of putting the sticks into our bins, because that's our resource. And that's our resource as society. If we want to scale, you know, this, this urban harvesting mindset and thinking about how many resources we actually have in our cities that are currently not being used so yeah i can give you my top 10 list of all these different cuisines in in vancouver because we're definitely foodies and we love to share these recommendations on slack with the rest of our team to make sure that everyone tastes the new sushi spots around town
1: now as we established earlier you didn't grow up in vancouver you're from a small village in the german alps but you are resourceful and you've been resourceful since day one i would almost never ask this question but i was told to Felix, how did you learn how to speak English?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, actually don't know if Felicity wanted this question to be asked because she knows the story. So I, I learned English uh, watching How I Met Your Mother because so I left school when I was fifteen and I only had one or two years of English in school, and it's. It's, it's not been my forte, you know, education. I was, I was always very distracted with wanting to help in the family business, felt a lot of responsibility back home. So when I decided to move abroad, you know, around 2011, I needed to catch up on English fairly quickly. And my number one goal to move abroad was I just wanted to do find my humor back in English because I heard that this is the toughest. You're you're almost changing personality if you're getting insecure in a new language. That was horrifying to me to know that I could potentially lose my bad German humor I just wanted to maintain my bad German humor in English language. So I'm almost back there, you know, I'm almost cringeworthy again. My wife is rolling her eyes every single day. So that is a great confirmation. But yeah, I did learn English watching the entire show, How I Met Your Mother from start to finish within, I think, a month or so. And my very favorite saying, which is still what I go by, is how Barney always says, challenge accepted. Because there's rarely any moment where I don't, feel you know if someone tells me this is not how you are supposed to do it or this is not going to work my mind immediately thinks challenge accepted
1: well a couple of those things resonate with me because part of this discussion i feel like i have met your mother to a certain degree and then the other part of this discussion when you said cringeworthy I'm a dad of two young children, so I do dad jokes, and so those are (laughs) cringeworthy as well. I know the other thing you like to do, Felix, when you're not dining out, when you're not working, you are a massive dog lover. What is your dog's name and what makes him such a special companion?
0: can't believe I now have a reputation to be a dog lover because I just had this conversation two days ago where, where Talia, my wife, said, Felix, now you're a dog person, huh? And I can't believe what a, what a dog does to you if you actually have one. So we, we have a little puppy, um, uh, a little rescue. His name is Muesli, like the cereal because he's a mix of all sorts of things. And he's a great addition to to the little family and is a working dog. So he's uh, sitting here behind me while I do this podcast. And he knows, usually at the tone of my voice, when I'm about to end a call or about to say thank you, then he starts stretching and knows we are going out for a five-minute break.
1: Well, you have been a wonderful addition to the Little Kitchen Academy family and a wonderful addition to this podcast as well. I feel privileged to have had this conversation today. Felix, thank you very much for doing this.
0: Thank you, Scott, for having me. It was really nice to share a little bit more about chopsticks today. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen?